Well, good morning, Branch Church. It is a blessing to be with you all this morning as we continue our worship through the hearing and the receiving of God's word this morning. One of the ongoing human struggles is wants versus needs. I want to have ice cream for breakfast, but I know that I need a well-balanced and nutritious meal to start the day off right. I want to sit on the couch most today, but I know I need to get up and do some exercise, right? Supposedly healthy for you. It is. I want to come home and play on my phone the rest of the day, but I need to get up and to engage my kids. They need that love and support from their dad. Andertunes put out this little comic illustration that I thought was perfect for this. So in the picture, you have a teacher, and the teacher is in front of a board, has two categories, wants and needs. In front of the class, the needs says food, shelter, water. And then on the wants side, it says things like phone, television, Legos, etc. And then the caption says this. One of the students says, I noticed that fractions were not listed under needs. <laughs> and all the anti-math people said, that's right. <laughs> we are in John chapter 12 this morning, and we are getting into the last public revelation of Jesus in the gospel of John before he takes some time, sets himself aside, and prepares his disciples for his departure. And we're going to run into a lot of crowds today. And the crowds have wants. And what they want is a kingly Messiah. We want a kingly Messiah who is a bad dude like David. He's strong. He's militaristic. He can come in. He can conquer. He can get the job done. That is what we want. That is what we're waiting for. Jesus is going to reveal to them, though, that's not exactly what they need. There's something else that they need that is even more important than conquering, more important than dealing with a political land that they want to hold on to. There is a sin problem, and his death is going to be the answer to it. So as we look at John chapter 12 and we read the rest of the chapter today, we are going to learn the following, that Jesus reveals himself publicly as King Messiah, as the kingly Messiah, whose death is going to glorify God by bringing both salvation and judgment at the same time. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, please, to John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. So you don't get lost in the passage. It simply breaks down like this. Jesus is going to go through the triumphal entry, where he enters into Jerusalem, and then Jesus is going to teach about something very important that they need, the kind of death he's going to die. Chapter 12, verse 12. It says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, this is the Passover feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus is entering the city of Jerusalem. He has not entered in yet, and a big crowd exits the city, comes out to him, and they welcome him. But this isn't just any ordinary welcome. This is a kingly welcome. They find palm branches and begin to wave them around. Why on earth are they waving giant palm branches in the air? Well, I don't know for sure, but there's a possible chance it has something to do with a nationalistic hope. 
It could be, as D.A. Carson points out, this nationalistic hope of a liberating Messiah has finally come. I think maybe, maybe for us it would be akin to a ship coming home and we're waving our American flags, right? We're really excited. We're really patriotic. And then they're shouting together Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. The Jews know this because during the Feast of Tabernacles, that seven days, the choir would get up and sing it every morning. And they would sing, Hosanna, which means literally save, give salvation now. Give salvation now. It's a cry of salvation. Now, when they're shouting it, does it exactly mean that? I tend to think it, it probably turned into some kind of acclamation or praise, kind of similar to one where we say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, something like that. And then they would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Originally applied to the pilgrims who were coming into Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. Here, though, it's applied to Jesus. And there's a little phrase at the end, even the king of Israel. What just happened? They welcomed Jesus publicly as the kingly Messiah. Remember the type of Messiah that they want. They are welcoming him in to Jerusalem. Now, what does Jesus do in response? Verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So what does Jesus do when they welcome him as king? Well, it's interesting to note before we answer that, how Jesus has reacted in the past. In John 6, verse 15, remember, he took the few fish and the few loaves, And he fed thousands, at least 5,000, if not 10 to 20,000 people, an incredible miracle. They noticed it, and they were getting ready to make him king by force. It's time, Jesus. We want you to be king. We already took a vote. You're in. Let's do this. Jesus withdrew himself from that moment and said, no, right? We learned that my hour has not come. What does he do now? Now he doesn't withdraw. He doesn't leave. He finds a donkey, and he gets on the donkey, and he rides it. What in the world is he doing? The disciples did not understand it. And it's not until the Spirit of God came and instructs them in the truth of Jesus' life did they understand it. Jesus was self-consciously fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where this citation comes from. He was telling them, I am the kingly Messiah. Now, they wanted him to come on a war horse, but he comes in on a donkey. He is already showing them the type of Messiah they need, a humble Messiah. And if you keep reading Zechariah 9.9 and then 9.10, you're going to get into this universal prince of peace, this universal peace that the Messiah is going to bring. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So because of Jesus' last climactic sign he did in raising Lazarus from the dead, the crowd with him who saw it is telling everybody. The crowd who came out of Jerusalem is like, we heard about it. The Pharisees are throwing their hands up. What are we doing here? Everybody's gone after this guy. Jesus is welcomed as the kingly Messiah. And he also acknowledges, this is why this is such a big deal. It's in all four gospels. 
Jesus acknowledges publicly that he is that kingly Messiah, not necessarily the one they want, but that the one they need, not the one they necessarily want, but the one that is described in scripture itself. Verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, this is just a totally personal side note. I love how the Greek says it. It says it like this. Sir, we desire the Jesus to see. We desire the Jesus, the one and only Jesus to see. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Indeed, the whole world has gone after Jesus. Look who's showing up. Greeks. These are Gentiles. These are Gentile God-fearers showing out, we want to talk to Jesus. We want, to, we want to find out more about this guy. And so they go to Philip. Why Philip? I don't know why, but it's interesting that Philip also has a Greek name. And then Philip tells Andrew, why? Why can't he just go to Jesus on his own? I don't know, but it's interesting. The only other person of the disciples who has a Greek name is Andrew. So we've got this whole Greek, Gentile, non-Jewish thing going on, which is really, really interesting that I don't know the answer to. But here we go. Verse 23. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The king is announced. He comes in. This is a big moment. He's not saying that I am running for king. I'm announcing my candidacy for office. He's saying I am the king. So what does the king do next? Does he come in and sit on his throne in front of everybody and say, here I am, baby, does he come in and, and gather the troops? All right, guys, here's the battle plan. Here's what's going to happen next. John tells us what happens here next. This is what Jesus does. He makes an announcement. He says, the hour has come and that the Son of Man would be glorified. Now, you hear glorified, you think what? Oh, it's going to be great, a big party, something awesome, exaltation, wonderful, goodness, things. That's not what Jesus necessarily means by glorification, which the next verse will tell us. Now, why does Jesus say son of man? We just got done with this kingly Messiah coming in according to Zechariah 9, and then he brings in son of man over here. So we got king Messiah and son of man. What is Jesus doing? Personally, I think he is meshing them together to help them understand it's the same person. So in order, in order to understand the type of Messiah they need, they have to understand the Old Testament. King Messiah rules Son of man will also rule, but son of man is also the suffering servant who will die. Therefore, if you can put them all together and see they're all speaking of the same person, then it makes more sense who we're talking about. Oh, a Messiah, a king who can actually die because I see all the Old Testament and how it works together. I read a, a book recently called The Scarlet Pimpernel. I looked at it, I was like, I don't think it's my kind of book. The cover wasn't interesting. The name sounded really funky to me. And then my wife encouraged me. It's a great story. She says, I've read it multiple times. She said it's one of her favorites. So, okay, I respect her. She's intelligent. It's got to be a good story, right? So I read it. It was a page turn. I couldn't put it down. It was told, in my opinion, a, a lot of the part through the eyes of Lady Blakenly. And she's got these two guys in her life. One is her husband, Sir Percy Blakenly. He, he's revealed as kind of this dumb, slow but strong man of integrity. And then on the other hand, there's the Scarlet Pimpernel. And this guy's showing up in France. He's rescuing people from the guillotine. He's rescuing the aristocrats who are in this whole mess that's being overthrown. And now the French government 
takes Lady Blakely and they're trying to turn her to get the, the Scarlet Pimpernel. And I'm going to ruin the whole story. So if you don't want to know, plug your ears. And at the very end, at the very end, she finds out that her husband and the Scarlet Pimpernel are the same person. She had no idea. She thought he was this slow, down, but good guy, but actually he was this incredibly courageous, strong man who was sacrificing his life to save people he didn't even know, and he didn't even have to. He ends up saving and rescuing her at the end, and it's a wonderful love story, and it's so great. <laughs> What's the point? Jesus is the son of man, is the Messiah, is the king, is the suffering servant. And so you have all these different pictures in the Old Testament. And when Jesus puts them together, you go, that's you. That's you, Messiah, King. It makes more sense now what he needs to do and what I need from you. Verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus now brings in an agricultural picture, an illustration of a grain. In order for the grain to produce more life, it has to first die. If it doesn't die, nothing else is going to happen. It will die alone. What is the point Jesus is making? Sometimes it is necessary. Death is a necessary precursor to finding life. And that is going to be the case in the glorifying of the Son of Man. Unless he falls Unless he dies, life cannot actually come out and rescue and save people. And that will make more sense when he is raised from the dead and conquers and defeats death. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus takes the principle of dying and then where life comes out of it and in, 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 a, in a way to the disciples is going to now apply it to them. So you have a scale here, hate and love. Carson is helpful. It's not an absolute scale of emotional hate and love. The scale is a Semitic idiom, which speaks of fundamental preference. So if you love your life, you fundamentally prefer yourself over everyone and everything else. You're basically the idolatrous God the climactic most important thing in your life. And if you love your life and you want to hold on to it and be God and be number one, you will in fact lose the very life you're trying to hold on to. But if you hate your life, that does not mean that you belittle yourself. You don't think of yourself as less valuable. You don't go around demeaning yourself. To hate your life means that you fundamentally prefer God over yourself. It is a picture of faith. It is a picture of trusting bowing your knee before the true king. You take the crown off your head that you made out of paper, the burger crown king, and you bow down before the king of kings who has a gold crown on his head that is heavier than the earth could possibly even understand or bear. And for those who do take off the crown and die, they will actually find the very life that they want. For those who want to hold on to it and you refuse to surrender, you will actually miss out and you will taste simply death and judgment instead. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. To serve Jesus is to follow Jesus. Faith does not mean that you go, yeah, I believe Jesus is the son of God, but then you go off and live life any other way that you want. 
Yeah, I believe God is real, but there's no evidence at all. You don't even say God, go to anything, go to church or whatever. It's like, well, I don't really know if you truly believe. If you believe, you are following. If you, if you believe, there's fruit coming out of your life. There's, there, there's, there's something showing that you truly do believe in your speech, in your actions, in your heart. You can tell there is a difference. And for those who truly follow by faith and believe in Jesus, two promises are given. Jesus says, they will be with me where I am. Where is Jesus? He's exalted to the right hand of the Father. It's a promise of God's presence. To follow Jesus, the reward of that faith, one of them is to be in the presence of God. No greater presence you could possibly have. I think even after the longest days and weeks and years and months, even the most introvert people would desire some sort of presence from somebody else. We were made that way. We were made that way for eternity. And that presence that truly fills and satisfies us is the presence of God. The second promise he gives is that you will be honored by the Father. You can get a lot of honor in this world. You can get the honor of the Nobel Peace Prize, maybe a, a sports hall of fame. For you though, in your world and what's important for you, if you were to get an honor, what's the greatest honor a human being could give you on this earth? Dad of the Year Award. Sorry, I already got that one. <laughs> Mom of the Year Award. Employee of the Month. What would it be? Whatever honor you could possibly imagine, or honors, plural, put them all together, they do not compare to the honor that you get from God the Father and being received into his presence. No greater honor, no greater blessing than for God to honor you and to save you. What does it look like for him to honor you? Honestly, I have no idea. But whatever it is, I think it will be amazing and beautiful. Even more than the honor, the fact of who the honor is coming from. Verse 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Jesus now begins to describe the very death he's talking about. And he calls it that he's being troubled. The Greek word is very strong. Jesus is horrified over what's about to happen. He is horrified. Carson points out he is horrified. There is a revulsion going on inside of him in the sense where we would rather die than face something like this. And he says, what shall I say, save me? Seems to be saying, no, this is why I came, to die so that fruit and life comes out, so that people are saved, and so that God the Father Almighty is honored. Jesus knew what it would cost. He knew, he knew, sweating bullets, he knew how hard this would be. But something was more important to him, the glory of the Father. Something was more important to him, the salvation of man. And so he doesn't back out, he doesn't quit, he doesn't give up. That's the kind of Messiah that we need. And he says, Father, glorify your name. The father responds, this is incredible. Oh, to hear God speak from heaven and have a thundering, booming voice. That would be so awesome. And he says, I have glorified my name. And you think, well, how did you glorify your name? Probably in the ministry of Jesus. We've seen John 1.14. He came to show the glory of the father. And Jesus has been showing the glory in word and deed. Remember John, he has been saying, 
Jesus says, when I speak, I'm giving you the Father's words. When I act, I'm doing exactly what the Father would have me do. He's revealing the Father again and again. And the Father acknowledges, yep, Jesus is the one who has been glorifying me. And secondly, he says, and I will glorify it. God has, how will he glorify it again? Probably in Jesus' death and resurrection, exaltation and ascension to the right hand of the Father. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Key word, now, right now. Now? Yeah, right now. You mean not at the end? No, right now. I'm pretty sure Jesus' judgment takes place at the end, right? Victory's at the end. No, with Jesus and him dying, he is actually bringing in salvation and judgment already to the world. The kingdom of God is already present. He's shown it by kicking the devil out, doing these miracles. He's shown it by doing all these wonderful things, uh, delivering people from demons, healing people, raising people from the dead. These are all pictures, all signs of the power of the kingdom of God. It's here for who else can do that? And that's the kind of kingdom that God will bring, a kingdom where there's healing, a kingdom where devils are cast out, a kingdom where you are made whole and there's only righteousness. No fighting, no bickering, no jealousy, no anxiety, no depression. Is that not the type of kingdom you want to be a part of? Can I get a witness? Come on, yes. That's the kind of kingdom that we want to be a part of. Jesus' death is comprehensive. It will glorify God, and how will it glorify God? By bringing both salvation and judgment. It will save the sheep who believe in them and Jesus from their sins but it will also at the very same time condemn those who do not believe. It's so interesting. They thought they were condemning Jesus to death. He actually gave himself up to die and then was condemning them for not believing. It looks like Jesus is being defeated by the devil. Actually, he is triumphing over the devil by paying for the sins of people. And the Satan has nothing he can now say to God's people no accusing, no slandering. He cannot bring you before God and say, look, God, look what so-and-so did. God, look what so-and-so did again. God, you could, no, because you stand under the shadow of the cross and the blood of Christ covers you. There's no slandering. There is no taking you out, no snatching you out of the Father's hands. The devil cannot do that. Is that not amazing or what? Is this not the kind of Messiah we need? Yes, it is. Verse 32, Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. To be lifted up was a picture of the cross. And when he got on the cross, he said he will draw all people. This is probably a reference to Jews and Gentiles. All colors, all nations, all nationalities. Through the cross, he is going to draw the world to himself. I think about the Tower of Babel. What happened at Babel? They got together, they're being naughty. God split them up, confused their language. They will not be able to do that kind of mischief again. What in the world will bring people back together? What will bring black, white, brown, red, yellow? What will bring whatever color, whatever shade you want to think of or possibly is? What brings all that together? English, Spanish, Chinese, French, Portuguese. What will bring it all together? Jesus. Jesus brings it all together and has created a people for himself that belong to him and to him alone. The only solution, the only unity this world will only truly ever see is by faith in the gospel. It's by faith in the gospel. We want unity. We really want to truly ultimately deal with racism and things in this world. We need Jesus to get in the middle and people to bow their knee to him. Then those problems begin to be fixed. 
because people now see through the love of Christ. Verse 34, we are now going to have, and we've done this before in John, the crowd is going to answer him. And if you've been with us long enough in John, you'll probably know that it's not going to be very encouraging to hear the crowd respond to Jesus' teaching. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They're confused. At least they seem confused. John's actually going to tell us that something else going on in their hearts. But we'll stick with the confusion for right now. They're confused. We looked at the Old Testament, Jesus, and the Messiah is supposed to live forever. So how can you say that he's going to die? Who is this dying son of man? We're not putting it together. How, how does this work? It's so interesting here before I get to that. But where are they getting this idea that the Christ remains forever? It's actually all over the Old Testament. It's true. It's good. Psalm 110 verse 4. You are a priest forever in the order of... Melchizedek, there will be a forever priest. That will be Jesus. We see Ezekiel oh, 37, 25, talking about David as prince uh, reigning forever. And I can't remember the other one. Verse 35, Jesus responds. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. Fascinating. Jesus does not talk about the Old Testament. He does not debate. He does not bring any kind of apologetic material to help them understand. He doesn't repeat himself. He doesn't say it again. What does he do? It boils down to a command. He says, believe. Believe. How can Jesus just tell them to believe? Well, he's done miracle after miracle, teaching after teaching. There comes a point where someone does not need another sermon, where someone does not need another Bible study. They don't need another devotion. They need to believe. They need to believe on the Son of God. Maybe that's you. You need to believe in the light, Jesus Christ, while you have opportunity, before darkness overtake you, and before he comes and judges the world and sets evil in its place. And you do not want to be on that side. The good news is you don't have to be because you can bow your knee to Jesus and believe in him and he will rescue you from your sin, bring you to the Father and give you everything that you possibly need, including the Holy Spirit, which is the ability to actually walk with, obey and love God and love people. John tells us what's really going on in the hearts here. We're gonna have two groups of people here. Here's the first. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? John takes Isaiah and Jesus and he is going to match them together in what we call a typological fulfillment. This is not a prophetic fulfillment, this is a typological fulfillment. In other words, in the same way that Isaiah was sent to preach and the words from God he would preach would only harden these people's hearts, Jesus has come, sent from God, and is preaching, and it is only hardening their hearts further. So Jesus and Isaiah are equated here as a type of way in their ministry and what they're doing. And Isaiah says this, verse 39, Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes. And harden their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. 
What has happened to this people? God has hardened their heart. Now we have to qualify this. God has not hardened a morally neutral heart. God has not hardened a innocent heart. God has hardened a heart that has already refused to believe that is guilty and condemned itself. God has merely set it in place through a judicial hardening. God is true and just in his judgments and how he decides to bring that about. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. This is one of those where we're like going this way on the freeway and then someone just hooks a right on you. and You almost fall out of the car or the golf cart or whatever it is that you're in. Isaiah just took a huge right turn. He drew this connection between Isaiah and Jesus in their ministry But if you only left it there, what might you think? Oh, Jesus maybe is not much greater than Isaiah. He's just kind of like a prophet. No, John does not make that mistake. He actually does this, and he switches to a different typological connection. The the glory of Yahweh from Isaiah 6, in which he's pulling from here, is the same glory of Jesus. So he equates Jesus and Isaiah in their ministry, but he doesn't leave Jesus there, but he equates Jesus and Yahweh in glory here. So we don't make the mistake of thinking he's only just a prophet. How could Isaiah have seen Jesus? Well, in the New Testament, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. When God reveals himself in the Old Testament, it's the word of God that is revealing him. When God reveals himself in the New Testament, it is the word of God who is the son of God, who is now Jesus, who is revealing him. That is how John... Isaiah was able to see the glory of Jesus because he saw him in his pre-incarnate, his pre-before he became human. He saw him in that Old Testament word of God glory in which he was with the Father for eternity. You having fun yet? Verse 42. This is the second group. The first group had hard hearts. The second group is very different. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. Well, that's good. Not everybody's hard in their heart. But... For fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So the second group is a secret faith group. They believe, but they don't want to tell anybody because they don't want to lose their synagogue membership. The synagogue is very strict. No believing in Jesus, no talking about Jesus, or else you will be out. So we won't tell anybody that we believe in Jesus. That's not okay. Not okay in God's sight. A secret faith, a secret Christian life where only your closet knows that you are a Christian, that's not okay. We need to have a faith that is public. In fact, when you believe upon Jesus, what's the first thing God calls and commands us to do? To be baptized. Be baptized. You believe and you publicly tell everyone that you identify with Jesus. If you are a believer and you have not been baptized, I strongly encourage you to obey the Lord and to get baptized. We're trying to do them quarterly around here. We didn't have anybody for the last one, and that's okay, but we'll keep putting them out there. If you have not, come tell me. I want you to engage in this wonderful act of obedience and to tell the world, I'm with him. Can you imagine if someone got married, but they didn't want anyone to know about it? Hey, man, I heard you got married. No, no, I didn't. Hey, girl, I heard you got married. Congratulations. I have no idea what you're talking about. How would that other person feel? Crummy. You're embarrassed by me? Because that person doesn't like me? Then why did you even marry me? I don't understand. 
if anybody should be embarrassed about anybody, Jesus should be embarrassed about us. Is Jesus embarrassed about his church? Is Jesus embarrassed about his bride? Not at all. Not at all. That's mind-blowing. The fact he would walk with her and the only good, the only righteous clothes she has is the ones that he has clothed her with. We are the bride of Christ. He paid for our sins with his blood, not ashamed publicly to die for us. He's not ashamed publicly to identify with us. We should never, ever be ashamed of his gospel. We should never be ashamed to identify with the king. I don't care how you feel about it. Kick me out of the club. Call me a name. I'm with the king. There's nothing you can say. Sticks and stones, right? Come on now. <laughs> Jesus now ends this part of chapter 12, and it seems he is responding to that secret faith group. And here's encouragement. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Secret faith group, hear this. When you believe in Jesus, you're not believing in just a man or some man. You're believing in all of God Almighty. Everything that he stands with, comes with. Remember, the Father and the Son are one in action and in purpose and even in their natures. He says, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. He says, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Well, I thought Jesus said in John 5 that he was the judge. God made him judge. So how is he? Well, let's put it together. He came first to save, then he will come to judge. And look at what he says about the judgment here. Verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus still is judged because his word is judge. Meaning if you believe in it or you don't, that will determine what happens to you. He says, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. When Jesus speaks, he speaks the very words of the father. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. With that, we close the first half of the book of John. Congratulations, we did it. We got through the book of signs and we saw Jesus' glory revealed in acts and words, which were the very fathers. And in this last public revelation, he reveals, I am that kingly Messiah. Not the one you want necessarily, but the one that you need whose death will glorify God, bring salvation and judgment to this world. It will save his sheep and it will take care of the evil and the evil one that is trying to run this world, hurt people and spread terrible ideas and ideologies and falsehoods and so forth. What is our response? John is so consistent. It's the same response every week, which makes it hard as a pastor in a sense to give you something different. But I think we can highlight different things within it. It's faith. Believe, which is not even bad. If God wants to hammer it over and over and over again, then I'll do it too. We are called to believe in Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God. And by believing, you will have life in his name. But what else do we learn about that faith? The faith follows Jesus. It doesn't acknowledge and walk away. We learn that that faith is not secret. It lives it out. Do people know you're a Christian? Do people know you believe? I think that would be hard for anyone if they go, you're a Christian? I had no idea. Wow, you hid that well. You can't hide that faith because it impacts the way you think, the way you talk, the way you interact, 
your integrity, your job work, your work ethic, it impacts everything, does it not? And the great news about the faith that Jesus gives us to believe upon him, it will be honored by God the Father. It will find the presence of God. You will have eternal life. You will be in a kingdom where there will be no more sickness or pain or hurt. You will be made whole. Who doesn't want to be made whole? I know I do. Father, we thank you for your, your revelation of John 12 and John chapter 1 through 12. You've told us so much about your son. How could we not believe? And I pray you would work within us soft hearts that believe deeply in your amazing grace. And because of that, live lives that are so public and so thrilled that the world, they would know, they would smell the aroma that it's Christ on our clothes. They would be attracted to the light of Christ that shines from our hearts. They would desire the mercy that we have tasted in the name of Jesus. Lord, save everyone in this room. Lord, save our children and help us to be lights to our work, to our neighbors, and to our family. It's in your name we ask, Lord Jesus Christ, amen.